Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you joining us for the very first time, is our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And uh, during this journey, what we attempt to do is to uh, get really down to the most important issues any human being will ever consider, questions about having a relationship with God as that relationship is revealed in His divinely inspired Word, the Bible. So if you'd like to uh, get in on this journey with us, uh, we welcome you joining us on the broadcast. Boy, it uh, really means a lot to us to see people literally all over the world joining us uh, each and every day here on A Reason for Hope, uh, wherever you may be. Thanks for taking the time out to do it. And if you're joining us live, uh, you can take advantage of any of our comment corners that you find on either Facebook, YouTube, our uh, own church website at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Dot com and get your questions to us. Uh, it is our desire and our vision uh, to, in a sense, scratch you where you itch as far as the uh, questions you have about the Bible. Maybe it's a passage or two in the Bible that have raised more questions for you and then have given you answers. Maybe it's how to apply the Word. Maybe it's how to defend the Word in these increasingly skeptical times. Maybe you'd like a biblical perspective on even the most controversial subjects that come up in uh, our increasingly uh, divided culture. Let's take a look at those things from a uh, scriptural point of view. Or maybe you'd like a heavenly look ahead by uh, getting involved with our conversation and talking about biblical prophecy. Got a uh, brief uh, prophecy update uh, to uh, give to you all as the broadcast commences. Uh, but uh, Sean, if people want to get their questions to us, how can they do that? Well, you can join us by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That will be the one-way venue at which we could receive your questions. If you'd like two-way communication, you can find that email address spelled out for future reference, but also for use on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our streaming page, ccftucson.online.church. And note that if you engage with us there, this will be the most surefire and secure way of long-term engagement as far as the broadcast is concerned. We know that YouTube and Facebook have been used, but uh, users can't, of course, be beggars. We are definitely on difficult terms with them because we speak the truth in love. So when it comes to whether or not we are live streaming on YouTube, which is a reason for hope, or Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, should we be taken down or messages be edited after the fact, feel free to still join us on our website, and there they can't uh, commit any what we call in the professional radio and tech business, monkey business. That's it. None of that will be going on. We encourage you to join us there. And again, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, Christian Fellowship. And if you want to join us there, we'll be looking forward to engaging with you. However, if you prefer Facebook, we'll use it while we still can. 
It's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Give us a like or subscribe, and you'll be notified when we are going live, but note it's the same time every weekday, 5 to 6 p.m., Mountain Standard Time or Pacific, if you're in Daylight Savings. So with all that being said, and of course hoping that God speaks more than we do, we want to start off with a word of prayer before looking ahead, looking back, or looking down at what awaits us. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, Lord, thank you so much that uh, we can welcome your presence here. And thank you, Lord, that it is uh, your promise that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. That is what we pray uh, for these next few minutes as we take a look into your word. Uh, Lord, we desire uh, to have it become more foundational within our lives, uh, more of a consistent uh, guideline and practice within our lives. Uh, Lord, more and more we desire to be able to worship you, as you've said, in spirit and in truth. And it is only your word that leads us to that. Thank you, Lord, that it is your word implanted that saves us and sanctifies us and makes us into everything you've created us to be. Uh, allow us just to walk away from this broadcast uh, with a greater sense of appreciation and delight in the awesome gift that you've given to us of your inspired word. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. All right, so what's going on prophetically? Well, uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh, one of the things that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 24 was the idea of birth pains. Uh, he said that uh, wars and rumors of wars among them uh, would be the beginning of sorrows. The word literally in the original language means uh, labor pain. And uh, as we've shared with you on a number of occasions, uh, when a labor pain happens, uh, there's a couple of uh, things that you can expect about it. First of all, a labor pain will increase not only in frequency, but in intensity as the big day draws near. Well, as far as wars and rumors of wars are concerned, boy, a number of very interesting uh, uh, articles and uh, statements that have been made uh, today. Uh, for instance, a, a lead story in the Wall Street Journal tells us that uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency has called out Iran for being uh, completely at uh, in violation of any kind of uh, guidelines regarding their nuclear program. Uh, in fact, our good uh, friend Amir Sirfati uh, wrote on his update this week, uh, the IAEA, that is the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency, says that Iran has not provided a sufficient explanation as to why there was nuclear material found at three different sites within Iran. Surmising the obvious answer was that the material was there because Iran was illegally pursuing its nuclear weapons work. A protest was lodged by the U.S., France, Germany, and the U.K. In response to the lodged protest, Iran shut down two more IAEA surveillance cameras at one of its facilities and later openly installed new and advanced centrifuges, that is, the centrifuges that are able to take uranium gas and process it into a form, purify it into a form that could be used for a nuclear weapon. And then today, they announced to the IAEA that 27, count them, 27 more surveillance cameras in their nuclear sites, including in Natanz, have been disconnected. Meanwhile, German intelligence issued a statement that Iran has stepped up its efforts to acquire technology for its nuclear program. Uh, Amir adds this comment to which the rest of the world responded, no, really? <laughs> so uh, that was interesting enough, and that happened earlier. But then a Wall Street Journal article uh, ran uh, just a couple hours ago that uh, stated that Iran now has in its possession enough fissionable 
material enriched to the proper level of 90 percent to be able to construct a nuclear bomb. In other words, they have the essential materials necessary to actually go nuclear at this point. Prior to this, if you've been following along with us on this story, uh, we've talked about how uh, the uh, so-called Iran nuclear deal, the Joint uh, Plan of Action, as it was called, uh, negotiated by uh, John Kerry and others during the Obama administration, uh, was uh, a, uh, a scheme that was designed to keep Iran's uh, level of uh, enrichment at 20 or 30 percent. Well, Benjamin Netanyahu, when he was president, or I should say prime minister of Israel, uh, came to the United Nations and talked about how easy it would be for Iran to enrich beyond that 20 or 30 percent to the 90 percent purity required for a nuclear weapon. So it does appear that uh, Iran is uh, going full tilt towards uh, achieving that particular means. Interestingly enough, uh, Israel in the last two days has conducted two separate surface-to-air missile attacks on the airport complex in Damascus, Syria, two of them. Uh, in, uh, the, in both cases, we are told uh, the first uh, was designed to target uh, weapons caches that have been received from Iran into Damascus. But this second one that happened just a few hours ago targeted also the runways, both military and commercial, out of the Damascus airport uh, to the point where uh, incoming international flights coming into Syria uh, have to be rerouted to Aleppo, a city on the coast, rather than to Damascus itself. People had to be bused again to Damascus from landing in Aleppo. So these two back-to-back surface-to-air missile strikes from Israeli emplacements on the Golan Heights above the area of the Sea of Galilee. We visited that when we were on our tour of Israel. And when you go up on the Golan Heights, it's kind of a fascinating thing. You can look across this flat valley and see the suburbs of Damascus out in the distance beyond you. It is that close. But it does appear that Iran is pursuing at breakneck pace a, uh, a nuclear weapon of itself. In fact, uh, on June 8th, the IAEA passed a resolution calling on Iran to explain the traces of enriched uranium that it found at its three undisclosed site of nuclear activity. This is a uh, column from the Washington Free Beacon. Hours before the IAE vote, Iran disconnected the security cameras from one of its declared nuclear sites. Then Iran began taking down IAEA cameras throughout its territory. The world's nuclear watchdog is now flying blind. According to IAEA Director Rafael Morano Grassi, he told reporters, uh, when we lose this, then it's anyone's guess as to what Iran is doing. Well, we know what Iran is doing right now. It is playing hardball. And uh, the thing that Iran has discovered is the more bellicose, if I can use that term, its approach, the more aggressive it is in terms of its pursuit of nuclear weapons, the more the West seems to fall over backwards, offering them uh, you know, re- reduced sanctions, uh, financial incentives, uh, more the carrot but not the stick. Uh, the big question that we've got to ask uh, is this. Uh, what does this have to say about things prophetically? Well, as we mentioned, Matthew 24 talked about wars and rumors of wars. If uh, you're talking about an entity that uh, makes every Friday a rally in its capital uh, declaring death to the great Satan and death to the little Satan. By the way, the great Satan is 
us, the United States. The little Satan is Israel. When you've got a uh, entity like that uh, going full tilt in that direction, it's not only going to be something that uh, Israel is going to respond to, and it will be very interesting to see what Israel's response is going to be to this development going forward, but also it's going to be very interesting to see, uh, as a result of the Abraham Accords, how the other Gulf states, who are also very, very much in fear of Iran becoming a nuclear power. Why? Because the Iranians uh, hold to a doctrine of Islam called Shiite Islam. Uh, the uh, Gulf states like Saudi Arabia are Sunni Islams. And if you want to see two groups of individuals who hate a group more than they hate Israel, they really hate each other more than they actually hate Israel because they consider each other to be heretics and traitors to the faith. So uh, you've got a very interesting set of circumstances here. Uh, you know, the Washington Free Beacon article uh, talked about the idea of uh, our response on June 9th. Our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said that Iran's motives against uh, the IAEA are counterproductive and further complicate our efforts to return to the full implementation of the JCPOA, that is the Joint uh, uh, commitment to a plan of action in this area. Uh, what's Blinken going to do about it? He said, we continue to press Iran to choose diplomacy and de-escalation instead. Well, I like what the Washington Free Beacon said. He said, this is willful blindness. Iran has made its choice. It rejected diplomacy and de-escalation. It opted for confrontation and resistance. But this is the interesting thing, and it ties into another very uh, interesting issue. It says, yet America is too preoccupied, too distracted, too overwhelmed to act accordingly. Inflation, crime, the border, guns, abortion, the Ukraine uh, command the public's attention. The growing danger from Iran does not. Meanwhile, the Secretary of Defense is a background player. The Secretary of State and the Sec National uh, Se uh, Secretary Security Advisor are staffers, not independent leaders. Uh, the idea that uh, we have a strong president here who's... Uh, Poll rankings are plummeting into uh, the low 40s overall. Some polls have him under 30% approval uh, ranking. Perfect opportunity uh, for a, an aggressive uh, power in that region uh, to act in a military sense. Uh, you know, again, uh, this drift towards global disorder began when, uh, for instance, the previous administration before Donald Trump's decided not to enforce the so-called red line about the use of chemical weapons in Syria. That was almost a decade ago. Uh, one way to repair uh, that uh, breach in American credibility and deterrence uh, would uh, be good to make uh, uh, would be good to make good on our longstanding promise not to allow Iran to get a hold of nuclear weapons. Now, where does this lead here? Well, we know a few things prophetically. And, you know, when you don't know what's going to happen next, it's always good to fall back on what you do. Number one, is Israel going to be wiped out before Jesus returns? We have his word that that will not be the case. Okay, so we know that for sure. Secondly, we know that there is going to be an invasion of Israel that is going to take place in the last days prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It is going to involve Russia and a number of other nations, but most specifically, one of its allies is going to be Persia, also known today as Iran. So we know that Iran is still going to be around. 
But we also know that Iran is going to be part of this invading coalition, not acting independently. Uh, the, the fascinating thing about all of this to me is how all of this is going to come together. Because if Iran does get the power to uh, launch a nuclear weapon, it will certainly not launch it at Jerusalem, but it could launch it at one of uh, the major cities in Israel that is key to their trade or to uh, industry. Uh, and uh, like Haifa on the coast could be a very uh, possible target. Uh, it could use nuclear weapons, uh, for instance, and we were already hearing some rumblings from the Hezbollah terrorists in uh, Lebanon about taking out uh, Israel's uh, new, newly found uh, natural gas facilities in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Israel continues to develop those. Uh, Hezbollah continues to say uh, that they're not going to allow Israel to develop those things fully. But understand something. If uh, those natural gas tracks that Israel is developing come online, that is going to be a huge blow to the Russian economy because it's going to provide a huge competitor to the Russians in terms of supplying the energy needs of Europe and the West. It is that huge a discovery of gas tracks out there. Uh, very interesting how in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when this last day's invasion of Israel takes place, uh, the main goal is to take spoil. Now, there's not really a lot of spoil, unless you look at fruit production or things like this, for people to take in Israel now. But, as we know, uh, energy is what makes the world go round. So we see that coming online as well. So putting all this together, uh, what can we look at? I, I think we can see this as developing. And I think in the next couple of weeks ahead, you're going to see another uh, birth pain start to build to a fever pitch. There's going to be a response from Israel to Iran, uh, achieving this particular uh, milestone along the way of becoming a nuclear power. And things in the Middle East are going to get quite tense. We may even see some kind of a limited war take place between Iran and Israel as a result of all of that. We're also going to see, I believe, the United States have to put our cards, in a sense, on the table. Are we going to aid Israel in terms of taking out Iran's uh, nuclear capabilities? Uh, we were just involved uh, less than a month ago in one of the largest war games uh, that have taken place with Israel and the United States cooperating together to uh, simulate uh, what an attack on Iran nuclear facilities would look like, including the refueling of airplanes and so forth. Are we going to stand with Israel or not? Now, this is going to be huge as far as the United States is concerned. We've also already read uh, some of these statements, uh, like the United States is so distracted with domestic issues, with a, a weakened government, with a divided populace. Uh, to really be a major player in that area. People always ask, you know, where is the United States in biblical prophecy? You know, it would seem like the United States, since we are the 800-pound economic and military gorilla in the world, uh, would definitely show up in any last-day scenario. But we are almost conspicuous by our absence. Well, I think we might be seeing some insight into all of this. Because although the United States does have a formidable military, although the United States and the dollar itself are the currency that, uh, in a sense, the world trades upon, uh, we need to realize uh, just how in debt the United States is 
And uh, with inflation uh, beginning to spiral out of control, the United States may very well find ourselves in a place where we can no longer fund the military the way that we did, where states like Israel are going to say, well, we got to take care of ourselves. We're going to have to take things into our own hands. Uh, very interesting that we seem to have uh, an awful lot of uh, resources uh, for a lot of different projects, but most of them are socially oriented. We, we've talked about how the British Empire collapsed uh, when it decided that it was going to become more of a social state than uh, prop up its empire. So the United States may be very well going uh, slowly into that dark night. We may be fading from the scene. We may be seeing that. Now, my particular preference as far as answering that question as to why the United States isn't mentioned in biblical prophecy has to do with the rapture of the church. You know, we've mentioned that uh, the United States has, uh, according to the Barna organization, uh, nearly uh, 60 million professing Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Well, uh, what would happen if Barna was half right and 30 million people suddenly vanished in the United States, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, as the Scripture speaks of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Well, the United States would be absolutely gutted. And into that power vacuum, it would become necessary for someone to step up, bring back world order, maybe even facilitate what's called the Great Reset, being able to bring in a new and just society, just as the Scripture says, the Antichrist will come on the scene and proclaim himself to be a man of peace, a man of order, a man who's going to bring economic prosperity to the world for a time. We may be seeing more of those pieces of the puzzle coming together. So as always, please pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for our leaders. Uh, pray that uh, we stand uh, firmly with Israel. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, Abraham's uh, promise he received from God is still fully in, uh, in force. God is going to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse them. Boy, it's very, very important that we stand with Israel, especially as things look to be heating up in the Middle East. So keep an eye on it. I'm sure you're going to see uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks or so things really getting interesting again in the Middle East. Unfortunately, but I'm Lord Jesus nonetheless. Yeah. Now, going out to our questions, a few topics, and I just want to overview them as far as our agenda going forward. So for those of you listening, you understand the pace at which we're going to want to get through these. We have a question about the authority of Scripture and where the line is regarding that being a salvation issue, a compromise that we would consider apostasy. Uh, there's a few contradiction claims, uh, one in the book of Acts and another in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, and we also received a question about altar calls and about the statement made, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief in the context of, do you believe I can raise your child from the dead? Right. So where do you think we should begin as far as importance? Because I think those all address very key issues. Well, I think, uh, I think it's just one of those things where all of those issues are so important, but let's talk uh, first of all, about the whole issue of inerrancy and how important that is. All right, so regarding the statement, and this again is going to be a very serious correction, so I won't mention the name of the one who sent it, uh, regarding difficulties with the Gospel of Luke in particular, the individuals making the assertion that any attempt to reconcile a 
put forward contradiction is not a reconciliation, it's an excuse. And I quote, uh, writings which require excuses don't hold the same weight as those which don't, and is given by hand-selected apostles as those compiled by non-witnesses. We talked about yesterday, or the day before, actually, the last time you were here, right. about the historicity of the Gospel of Luke and how it is actually the most verifiable of the three Gospels as far as a Greek or a Gentile eye is concerned. Now, when as this, far as even an expert in evaluating history is concerned, and we yeah. had a limited time frame, so we couldn't go into all the examples, but we did make a reference to expert witness. Now, the point being made is this: when we're talking about the issue of what we can and what we can't disagree on as Christians. Obviously, the end times aren't one of them. Obviously, church leadership isn't one of them. And obviously, there are secondary issues we wouldn't... Cultural as, issues. Yeah, yeah. what we issues wouldn't... Issues practice. Yeah. And, and this is the phrase, we wouldn't divide fellowship over. We right. would say, you're still a Christian, just note this is an area of disagreement we can allow to exist. Right. When it comes to the areas we can't allow to exist, we try to keep it as low as possible, not only because... Scripture supports those those low numbers, but it also gives us the opportunity to, as much as depends on us, live peaceably with all men, especially those of the household of faith. Right. So the four that we can't disagree on, and what would put you would excuse me, what we call Coltville, is first whether you affirm this is a salvation issue in the deity of Jesus Christ, right. that his claims to be God were not only authentic, but clear in direct reference to being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. The second non-negotiable that we do not compromise on is the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of God as revealed in foreshadowing scripture, in especially the regards of Jesus' deity, but also him being distinct from the Father and the Spirit, otherwise his words become nonsense. Right. The third is his statements about salvation, how we get to heaven. Is it by grace through faith, or anything more or less, if the latter could even be such a thing? Now, when we're talking about those three, where do we get those non-negotiables? That is the fourth non-negotiable, that the scriptures, the 66 books that we call the Old and New Testaments, the Bible, the collection of the books in Anglican, is in fact our authority for what God is like and how to have a relationship with him and our fellow men as a result. Right. Now, if that's our authority, and if that is our basis and foundation for truth, then we're all solid, especially on the first three, because that's where we get all that information from. If we disregard the fourth, then the first three are completely up in the air, because where do we find out where Jesus ultimately claimed to be God? How do we understand the doctrine of the Trinity sure, properly yeah. defined, and how do we understand salvation? Now, obviously, there are good Christian teachers, and I somewhat hesitate at that, who play fast and loose with this in order to avoid controversy among non-Christian circles. We've mentioned names that we don't have to for right. the context of right. this discussion, sure. yeah. who would say, I don't really know what inerrancy means anymore, as far as in a professional or an authoritative definition. Or they would say, you know, it, I could go either way. As far as a gospel I would affirm or deny, I would more go towards this one than others. Uh, people, say for example, in textual criticism, tend to want to focus more on Mark than John or Matthew. But the outright rejection 
of the Gospel of Luke as belonging in Scripture because of fill-in-the-blank reason here. This is where we need to start asking questions, and since the individual who sent the comment isn't so fond of Luke, why don't we go to the Gospel of Matthew where the issue of the unpardonable sin was discussed, where Jesus was performing miracles, a work of God was taking place, and it was attributed to demons, that something was being disregarded and directly put in opposition to God when it was, in fact, a work of God. Now, Jesus obviously threw their argument on their head, but this is in the context of exorcism. If we're going to talk about a line you do not cross, if you want to still call yourself a Christian, if you want to have confidence in your relationship with God, where is that line? To have a favorite gospel, to have a least favorite gospel, to deny or even outright reject the validity of a gospel, or is it perhaps a little bit more strict than that? Yeah, well, uh, when it comes to the issue of inerrancy, and maybe we should define our terms here, when we say inerrancy, what we're saying is, is that the Bible claims about itself that it is not man's word about God, but God's word to man. Uh, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, that all Scripture, each and every one in the original language, is God-breathed, theopneustos. That is, literally, God was the one who inspired these words being written, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Bible says that, again, this is the standard that we should look at it as. Now, that's not circular reasoning. That's what the Bible claims about itself. It says that it is the very God-breathed word of God. It sets up a title and status for itself in line with a test or requirement that would verify or reject that. It's not non-falsifiable, so it is falsifiable. The point then is then being made. Does it meet its test, and is the test it presents for itself reasonable? And yeah. We've talked about that. Yeah, but when we come to the idea of inerrancy, what we're saying is, because the Bible claims, let's use that word for our sake of argument here, to be the Word of God, there are certain things that we would expect it to be to be characteristic of it because it claims to be the Word of God. That is, it will be free from errors in the original manuscripts. Now, that doesn't mean that every copy we have of the Bible is free from, say, a copyist error or, or an omission that was made by a scribe or something like this. But what it does mean is that in the originals, we have God's inspired word. No less an authority than Jesus himself uh, talked about the Bible on those terms. In uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus was quoted as saying, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We are told, uh, for instance, that uh, in uh, Psalm 12, in verse 9, that God's words are pure words, like uh, a gold refined in a furnace seven times. God will keep them uh, forever. In other words, he's going to preserve them for us so that we can understand them. Uh, we are told that we are not to add to God's words, lest he rebuke us and we be found a liar in uh, Proverbs chapter 30. So, you know, when we see this and we see what Jesus had to say about this subject in the book of Matthew chapter 5, and verse 17, where he says, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle 
will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In other words, what Jesus is saying is down to the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's, the Bible is the Word of God. Now, when we talk about why we believe that claim, well, we've talked before about how the Bible passes the test of being uh, divinely inspired. First of all, it's accurate historically. It is true to the things that we can verify on this earth. It is uh, free from contradiction. It has doctrinal consistency to it, even though it was written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors in three different continents and three different languages. It reads down to the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's, the most controversial subjects known to man. But it also has a supernatural quality to it in terms of biblical prophecy. It is the only uh, divine book, one that claims to be divinely inspired, that can show us that the God who lives above and beyond time, who is sovereign and in control of all events, has written it because he predicts things and they come to pass. So, you know, we take a look at that and we come to the conclusion that we believe in biblical inerrancy. And that's not a side issue. Uh, if we deny biblical inerrancy, if we say, well, okay, I'm willing to concede, for instance, in this case, the test case seems to be the Gospel of Luke, that we have preserved for us the Gospel of Luke pretty much as it was written. And uh, as far as the uh, passages that are still held as being in doubt as true to the original, even with the vast wealth of manuscript evidence we have, very few really come from the Gospel of Luke at all. Uh, so, you know, it's very interesting that that would be the lightning rod of controversy in this set of circumstances. But the minute I come to a book like the book of Luke and say, well, I'm not sure I believe this because I like this and I don't like that. And, you know, and Jesus says this here, and I'm not sure about this over here. We've got to be very, very careful because what we've done is we've set ourselves up as an authority over God's word rather than putting ourselves under the authority of God's word. And, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is if we have that level, in a sense, of arrogance, like I know better than the Bible about these things, well, we need to take a step back and examine our hearts. Now, can someone, I guess this is the essence of the question, deny that the Bible is the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in some sense and still be saved? Well, I would say yes for this reason. Uh, in the book of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19, Jesus said this, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus doesn't say if someone breaks these commands and teaches men also, straight to H -E -double, They're out of the kingdom of heaven. Straight to H-E-double hockey sticks for you. People can be mistaken about these things. And, and, you know, when it comes to a salvation issue, and you can apply it to this controversy about inerrancy, do you have to believe in inerrancy in order to be saved? Well, put it this way, it helps. It really does help, because Jesus did say, the one who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and he shall never perish. He shall not enter into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Notice what gets us in there. It is hearing God's word and believing it. We have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, the word of God, we are told, both in 1 Peter and in the book of James. So, you know, the, the word of God is a really important thing. But having said that, 
What does the Word of God say about salvation? Well, maybe the most defining statement of salvation you're ever going to run into is in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, where it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, notice it doesn't say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and have a solid understanding of the inspiration of Scripture and the preservation of Scripture and the, the uh, key importance of Scripture in the life of a believer and believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you'll be saved. No, the, the, the bar, in a sense, is set low. It's very simple. When it's a question of a saving issue, that is probably the most defining thing that we can say. And the key is whether or not it's the real Jesus and it's the real acts that he did to accomplish that saving work. If you believe in a false Jesus or one that's handed to you in order to promote a Ponzi scheme, that's another issue as well. Right, right. And that's absolutely true. So, you know, when people say, well, you know, we get this question as well. Can you be a genuine born-again Christian and be pro-choice? I would say, yes. It's very possible to be very poorly taught born-again Christian, not understand what the Bible has to say about how God views pre-born life, uh, not understand what the Scripture has to say about the sanctity of life, and that the fact of the matter is all human beings are worthy of respect and protection uh, because we're made in the image and likeness of God from the get-go. You know, from the time King David said, you saw my unformed substance going forward, uh, God saw David. He, all of the days of his life were written in his book when there wasn't yet one of them. So, you know, there are uh, believers out there who don't understand these things. Or maybe they've been in churches where these issues are never dealt with. So I could see someone who's a poorly taught Christian being pro-choice, pro-abortion, if you will. Uh, but I think the more you get educated on the subject, uh, the more your views are going to come into line with what the Lord himself has to say on that subject. Same thing is true with the idea of the inspiration of Scripture. The more you begin to understand it, the more you should come to a place of going, well, yeah, I just don't really see where Jesus gave us a whole lot of wiggle room around all of this. I don't want to be sitting in judgment of God's Word. I want God's Word sitting in judgment of me. So, you know, I think it's, a, I think it's an area of growth in uh, our walk with God, and it's not uh, an issue that we just have to uh, do some kind of leap in the dark or, you know, close our, our eyes and uh, go, no, 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 I don't want to look at that passage in Luke. No, I mean, the more we take a look at some of these so so-called alleged contradictions, even the, the most uh, challenging, uh, seemingly contradictory passages we have in the Bible have reasonable solutions if we give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. But if, on the other hand, we say, no, these are excuses, then you have to be consistent. For example, it notes in Matthew, after the temptation, Jesus performs the Sermon on the Mount, giving the Beatitudes and such, whereas in Luke, this appears to happen significantly later in Jesus' ministry, which is accurate. It would be as far as Matthew's timeline around chapter 10. But here's the problem. Now, you can call this an excuse if you, you mean want. Luke's, Luke's timeline. And Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. But yeah. I'm noting as far as when Luke would have given that message, this is after the commissioning of the disciples, so that would fit yeah, in. Yeah, but even that, more. you know, that's brought up as a contradiction. Well, that but, A isn't what a contradiction means, but let's just note the consistency but, of this But issue. let me just throw that out. Um, that's not even a valid one to point to, because uh, first of all, it assumes that Jesus only gave a message like that once. Uh, if you've hung around here, 
uh, for any length of time. There are people who go, yeah, I've been going to church long enough, and I remember when we went through the book of Revelation the first time. Well, could you imagine somebody saying, oh, that's a contradiction. Uh, Scott only went through the book of Revelation once. No, we're going through it again. Uh, you know, and we it took see, 20 years, but we're doing it again. You know, and, and we see, uh, for instance, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we see it at the beginning of his ministry, and it was described as a sermon given on a mountain, one of the hillsides by the Sea of Galilee. The account that we find in the book of Luke is called the Sermon on the Plain, because that's where he gave it. It's very clear that this was a different time in his ministry. Although it deals with similar subject matter, it was given later on, and Jesus was not uh, above repeating himself. In fact, that seems to be one of Isaiah's favorite teaching tools. They said, uh, you know, he just repeats the same thing, line upon line, precept upon precept. Well, same thing with the Lord. So, you know, when people bring that sort of stuff up, uh, you know, the, the question I have is, uh, all right, uh, are you coming to the Bible because you've already made up your mind it's got to contradict itself, and you're looking for evidence to support your thesis? Or are you coming to the Bible with an open mind saying, okay, I want to see if this actually fits together? Can it be harmonized, yeah. not made excuses for? And yeah. note again, consistency is king. But we also want to make sure our definitions are straight. And this is important because we have another contradiction we'll deal with in a moment. If a contradiction is being put forward, understand that is a big word, and words have meanings. It is a violation of the second formal law of logic that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense, two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. Right. If there was a contradiction, it would state, Jesus spoke these words at this time at this place alone. If Luke accounted and said that Jesus spoke these words at this time and at this place alone, never again in his ministry, that would be a conflict in idea. That would be a non-A compared to an A, and thus a contradiction. But the problem is, Jesus isn't reported as only saying those words, it just reports that he said those words. And as you and I know as public speakers, if we give a good sermon, we want to milk it a little bit. We'll get the most out of it. That, of course, is being facetious, but here's another issue. Consistency is a problem. Because another contradiction was leveled in that the thief, well, on, and this is key, okay. a thief on the cross story only appears in Luke. Whereas Matthew and Mark say the thieves both mock Jesus, this is a contradiction. Quote. So if we're going to but be it's consistent. Not. Well, again, we already <laughs> dealt yeah. with that, but here's yeah. another problem. Yeah. If you want to be consistent with that handling of Scripture, not just historical documents, but Scripture, then let's also throw out the Gospel of John. Why? Well, because very plainly here in the Gospel of Matthew, we have a report of Simon of Cyrene in verse 32 of Matthew 27 carrying Jesus' cross. He was compelled to in the passage. Whereas in the Gospel of John, it says in verse 17 of chapter 19, he bearing his cross went out to the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him. No mention of Simon and Cyrene. It's a contradiction. You've got to throw out the Gospel of John now. Obviously not. So we need to be consistent in our handling of Scripture, and we need to take this seriously. Yeah. And, and the key thing here, and John, I hope you'll take this into account in your uh, taking a look at the Bible and your search for God's truth, uh, just because a, a gospel doesn't mention a detail, and other gospels do, isn't a contradiction. It's an addition of detail. 
it gives us a fuller picture of what was going on, not a contradictory picture. If, for instance, it says that Jesus was crucified in one gospel, but in another gospel it said he was stoned, then you would have a contradiction because you can't have both going on at once. If Jesus was crucified alone or with two people, that would be a contradiction. If it says that the thieves mocked Jesus and never said anything more than that, that it was at that time that Jesus was Or they mocked last. him until he died. That would you know, be an but issue. That, but that's not what it says. It there says was, that after that, there was about a span of three hours, which I'm sure when you're literally clinging to life after having been ravaged sure. by Roman crucifixion would give you time to think. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, again, John, I hope that you will uh, take a look at these things with uh, a little bit more of an open mind and an open Bible, and I think you'll find the answers you're looking for. All right. Now, going out to a more, I guess, amicable question as far as contradictions are concerned, uh, the difficulty is between Acts chapter 9 and verse 7 and Acts chapter 22 and verse 9, both of which are, of course, accounting Paul the Apostle at the first instance, Saul of Tarsus, when he first encountered Jesus, it notes him hearing a voice, but seeing no one as far as the men who journeyed with him. Whereas Paul's retelling in Acts 22 says, those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, obviously, we can go into translation issues as far as them hearing and understanding the voice. Well, that's the, that's the whole issue there. And that's where yeah. ultimately we can lay this out. Yeah. So since you're the one who knows the Greek... Why don't you lay this out for us? Yeah, uh, yeah. probably the easiest way to uh, put this together. Is it Anita that is asking the question there? Annie. Annie. Uh, thanks so much for that, Annie, because it does get asked a lot. You know, when we take a look at the passage in Acts chapter 9 and verse 7, where it says, uh, the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Uh, the word hearing there is the Greek word orao. It carries the idea of hearing a noise, that is, something that enters into your ear canals. Uh, it doesn't say anything about understanding that voice. It just said that they heard the voice that was speaking. I interestingly, in Acts chapter 22, the parallel account, uh, we were told that those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. That word in the original language is the word akuo, which means to hear with understanding. In other words, it's one thing to hear a noise. It's another thing to be able to discern the information the noise is communicating. So what Paul is saying, and there is no contradiction here, is that in Acts chapter 9, these people saw the light. They were definitely afraid of it. They heard a voice, but they didn't understand what the voice was saying. Now, there's a number of possible explanations for all of that, but probably it was because Jesus was having a very private conversation with Saul of Tarsus at that moment. There's uh, others who put forward, maybe he was speaking to Saul in Hebrew, whereas those with him only spoke Aramaic, kind of an inference, weak. Yeah, but I, not I, I, I don't buy that because uh, those who would be with someone like Saul on a trip like this would probably be pretty hardcore. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just think it was a question of the Lord communicating this very specially to Paul. And so when we begin to understand the choice of these words here, and this is where studying in the original language, or getting involved with a commentary that can use those words in the original language, if you're not, you know, conversant with it, uh, can really help out. Because when we begin to understand the use of arao 
in Acts chapter 9. It just means they heard something. Uh, You might recall a great example of this was uh, when Jesus prayed that the Father uh, would, uh, would, would preserve him and give him the ability to come to the cross, but glorify your name. We were told that a voice thundered from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Uh, there were some who just thought that it thundered. There were others who thought an angel spoke to them. There were others who heard exactly what that voice from heaven had to say. And so you have that distinction, if you will, between hearing a noise, someone thinking it's just thunder, hearing a voice and uh, not really understanding the significance of it, and then someone like Jesus who heard and understood what the voice had to say. These are conventions we use in our language and uh, are pretty easily resolved uh, when we take a look at that passage in the original language. And and this kind of bounces back uh, to something that John said in his email uh, that uh, an accurate account of something doesn't need excuses. Well, these aren't excuses. These are explanations. You know, for instance, if you were going to go into a court of law and give testimony about something that you saw, one of the things that you would discover is that you're going to give your testimony. Uh, the prosecution and the defense will take turns asking you questions. Why? To clarify that testimony. Now, to say that uh, a true account doesn't need that kind of clarification, like you're saying about the Bible, will be the same thing about somebody coming in and saying, well, we don't need a prosecutor or defense attorney to ask this person questions. They already swore to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God. Either their testimony stands up or it doesn't. Well, we would think that was silly in a courtroom, right? Same thing is true as we explore the Word of God. We take a look at it, and we go, wow, you know, the, the fact is that we are dealing with different eyewitness accounts. If you really want to dig into this, highly recommend J. Warner Wallace's uh, website. What is his website again? I'll verify in a moment, but uh, Cold Case Detective Forensic Faith is uh, some of his more notable contributions to the apologetics world. But J. Uh, Warner Wallace, uh, again, uh, was a forensic uh, detective, uh, worked uh, for years uh, for uh, the city of Los Angeles, I believe. Coldcasechristianity.com. Coldcasechristianity.com. And you can see from his point of view, as someone who is a forensic uh, detective, uh, and he applies these same things to the Scripture, how these pieces of the puzzle come together. So check that out. I think you'll find that a real blessing in your life. Uh, Interesting question here from Mac, uh, and I want to throw this one out to you, Sean. When the church asks you to come uh, up to accept Christ into your life, is it necessary to walk an aisle or raise a hand to be saved? He says, also, I feel obligated to tithe, but I ever hardly ever do this. Is this bad? Well, I let's guess take it's these, all out let, there. Let's take this uh, one at a time. Do you have to go forward? Do you have to raise your hand? Do you have to fill out a decision card in order to be saved? No more than you have to get baptized. It's an important and an accurately represented biblical act of obedience that demonstrates what salvation is all about, but the substance of it begins and ends in the heart. So if I, for example, were put in a place where the only one who knew about my relationship with God, say a deathbed conversion, was between me and the Lord, it wasn't uh, invalid because I didn't do it in front of an altar because a pastor told me to do so. But if, on the other hand, I neglect any public declaration of my 
my faith, it shows there's probably another obstacle between me and my heart and the Lord. I have an intellectual assertion to the gospel, but not a personal one. And that's why when we talk about verses that affirm, not the altar call, but the concepts the altar call are drawing to the surface and calling you to publicly affirm right. that Jesus is Lord, that he demonstrated the fact that he is Lord, literally Yahweh, the covenant name of God, right. through his historical death and resurrection, and here's the kicker, that that was done for you, that the one who affirms that, to confess it, to say the same thing, and does so publicly, are all things that are affirmed in Scripture as reflecting a sincere conversion. Yeah, not necessary to be saved, because that would be salvation by works, right. but necessary as a important step of growth because we're saved, right? Right. So yeah. when we're talking about this, it certainly reflects a sincere relationship with God, but it's not the... Uh, I, I'm, hesitate to use fancy words because I'm starting to take them more seriously nowadays, but modus operandi, I think, yeah, might be yeah. the word. M-O, yeah. yeah the idea behind salvation isn't what I say or where I go, it's what the Holy Spirit does in me. Yeah. But if on the other hand I'd say, no, I don't want to do listen to the altar call, just receive Jesus quietly. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. That's all I'd have to say. Yeah, like Billy Graham would famously say, uh, that everyone whom Jesus called, he called publicly. And uh, he was willing to die publicly for you and for me. Least we can do is, uh, in, as a way of expressing our gratitude towards that, is, uh, as the scripture says in Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Uh, just pretty basic. What speaking about, of expressing what, what, gratitude. What about tithing? Where does that come in? Are, are we cursed with a curse if we, if we don't tithe? Uh, Malachi seems to indicate that. Yeah, to Israel under the Old Covenant, because that's how they supported the temple and the priest. But if we're going to ask the question, what is the purpose of tithing? It goes not in the New Testament or even necessarily in the Law of Moses. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Now, was, what is a tithe anyway? It just means a tenth. It was a demonstrated act done by Abraham when he rescued his nephew Lot from a band of kings marauding through the land of Canaan, not uncommon. And of course, he found a man, a righteous man, a good godly teacher. Some even claim was Jesus pre-incarnate. We disagree, but I digress. Uh, this man was obviously... Melchizedek. Yeah, he yeah. was a godly individual, and he gave him a tenth of the spoil. It was an offering to God. He says, well, you're the priest. Why don't you handle this? You can help the Jebusites out while you're at it. And uh, he received it. And then when the king of Sodom came up and said, oh, hey, uh, I guess we're giving each other gifts now. He's like, I don't owe you anything. Get away for me. Yeah. So the point be made is that. Now, if we carry that forward, and especially how it's applied and defined in the New Testament, even in the book of Hebrews, it was making a note and emphasis always in the context of who? The tribe of Levi. Now, the tribe of Levi were not given land in Israel because they were to be throughout the land of Israel. They were the priest tribe. And so in order to dedicate themselves to teaching God's Word, performing functions of police work, of judicial work, and every other legal representation of God as the mediators between God and men, that's what a priest is, right. that was how you'd support them. And to neglect that was to literally commit tax fraud, I guess, yeah. in the ancient world. Now, when it comes to, even during the time of Jesus, the old covenant was still in place before his resurrection. Why? Because the temple was still around, the Levites were still being supported. And even after his resurrection, the disciples wouldn't be setting doctrine for us by still paying tithes. In fact, it wasn't a tenth of their income. After all was said and done, it ended up being more like 23, which we long for in these days. Yeah. But the point being made is this. If we ask what a New Testament 
Testament tithe looks like or a giving. It's given to us in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he says God loves a cheerful giver. Yeah. So if that is your attitude in however much you choose to give or whatever you choose to give, whether it's of your treasure, finances, or of your time and energy in volunteering, that's acceptable too. We appreciate it. Yeah. But the point being made is that if you don't want to tithe, it's not going to curse you. If you want to tithe, understand that's its purpose, to reflect the heart of God, who is generous and wants to support his work. But if, on the other hand, you are you know, stingy and bitter and say, oh, the church just after my money, and don't apply that same logic to your internet bill, it's obviously inconsistent. We need yeah, to ask and, and, and God doesn't want you to give on that basis anymore than, uh, say, Sean, I were to say, okay, uh, gee, it's your birthday coming up. Okay, here's... Um, Here's $200. I guess it's your birthday. Here, you know, I was going to go out and buy some new golf clubs, but here you have my $200. I, I hope you enjoy it. Here, it's my obligation. W- would you enjoy that at all? I don't enjoy birthdays at all. Yeah, but uh, I mean, and, and God feels the same way. You know, if someone came up to me and they'd say, oh, you know, such a big deal. I had to give this to you. You know, I'd say, man, keep your money. And, and God has that, that same kind of attitude. He says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, there, here's the standard to know if you're doing it right. Uh, you're cheerful about giving. It's a kick. It's fun. It, the, the word there in the original language is the word hilarion. And, uh, you know, when we give, why should we be interested in giving at all? Because when we give... We're walking in the footsteps of our giving God. He is a generous God. You've heard that no one will ever outgive God. I can prove that. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You'll never uh, be able to give back to God anything that would hold a candle to what God, in fact, has given to us. So, you know, when I give, I give, and, I, and the, the wonderful thing is, I, I'm less selfish. I'm less focused on me and what I want. I can invest in the kingdom of God, and it gets me excited to be able to support, uh, you know, people and movements and, and ministries that I see bearing, you know, wonderful fruit. And I know that I'm standing with them while they're doing that. A service a is kick. being provided. It's a kick. It's really a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, if it's, you know, your church, oh, they're asking for money again. Oh, they're just trying to get into my wallet. Man. If we didn't get to your question, email it to us. We'll be looking forward to the next time we see you. Till then, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.